Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of the Plant Peace Podcast. I'm your host, Cheyenne Holiday, and I realized after listening to a different podcast today that I never really say my name. So if you're new, you're just like, hi. Um, but hello. So for this week's episode, it's going to be a little bit different than our usual. Um, We're not going to be reading from my book. We're actually going to be addressing a few animals that I did not include in the book or would like to elaborate more on. Um, For this week, we are going to be talking about alligators, turtles, octopus, frogs, um, clams, but not just clams. We're going to be talking about, let me look at the terms really quick. Um, They are called... It's like bivalve, bivalves and gastropods. Um, and we're also going to be looking at the leather industry. Um, I was writing individual sections for all this, and I found an article that really just kind of hit it on the nail. Um, and I was I just didn't want to waste my time because I already spent a while working on this for today. So we're going to just be reading from that article at the end of this. Um, And I'll obviously tell you what article is and who wrote it and all of that. Give credit where credit is due. But yeah, so that's what's in store for today's episode. Um, So yeah, if you're you're new here, welcome. Um, Usually we read from my book, Plant Peace. This is working as a sort of deluxe audiobook. So every week I read from a few chapters. Um, We have now reached the end of the non-human animal section. So next week we're going to be reading about humans and the effect that animal agriculture and just animal exploitation has on the planet and on our health and, you know, what we can do differently. Um, We're actually reaching the end of the book, so we're going to be, you know, finishing up here soon. And after that, it's going to be moving on from being weekly to um, just getting interviews when I can, maybe sharing updates with you guys about new things that come up. Oh, also on that, um, well, there's a new documentary that I haven't actually watched yet, but I'm excited to. And when I do, I'll definitely share about it on here, but it's called Milked. And you can probably guess what it's about. Um, it's about the dairy industry. And so that is a new film. I'm not positive where to watch Milked. Um, you can watch it for free on Plant Based News' YouTube channel. Great. Love that. Oh, yep. It's right there. So yeah, so I'm excited to watch that. Not necessarily excited, but excited to learn more and dive into it and be able to talk about it on here. And then there's also a show that just came out. Um, it is, the name is horrible, but I watched it because of the name. It's called Bad Vegan. Um, and so had some judgment going into it. Um, it was a it was a good series, but it had literally nothing to do about veganism. Um, the person in it is is vegan and had a raw um, vegan restaurant and was just psychologically and emotionally manipulated by this guy and went through this whole just train wreck of a situation. Um, why why they called it bad vegan, I really just think it was to get the attention of people. I found it to be a really interesting documentary. I feel super bad for the lady. Um, but yeah, that was, I was, I was upset about that. I was like, you guys could have picked a better name. Like this is, this is ridiculous, but it was a, it was a fairly interesting, um, docuseries. I think I watched it in like a day and a half. Um, but yeah, so if you've seen that and you're curious about it, you know, dive into it if you want. Don't expect to learn anything about veganism because it has nothing to do about that, but 
you're looking for an interesting story or, you know, signs that you may be emotionally manipulated, um, that might be, that might be a good place to start. Alrighty. Well, we are going to start here. I'm going to just take a sip of water real quick. Also this, I don't know if anyone, so if you're familiar with, this is not an ad at all. I have like five listeners. Um, but this is a life straw water bottle. Um, and I really enjoy it. If you've heard of life straw, it's, you know, supposed to filter out all of the bad things that could potentially kill you. It's supposed to be like a survival straw essentially for drinking water. Um, we have their water bottles and also they have a water pitcher that was kind of expensive, but, um, since drinking water, especially in Iowa is super sketchy out of the tap. Um, we filter everything we drink and I really like it. Um, I use, it's my day to day. So yeah, that's all. Just thought I'd mention it. Alrighty. We're going to start with octopuses, also known as octopi. Masters of camouflage and self-defense, octopi or octopuses. There's not like actually a um, an official right way is what I found when I was researching. Both is, both is correct. Anyways, octopi are truly brilliant animals. They're capable of morphing to match the color and texture of their environment and escaping rapidly from oncoming threats by essentially launching themselves away using a special water shooting muscle called a siphon. Sometimes they leave a cloud of thick black ink behind and disappear into the murky waters, evading their predators. If their tracker still manages to catch them, the octopus can likely escape by fitting into incredibly tight spaces, inaccessible to most. Since an octopus only has one hard part in their body, their beak, they can squeeze their moldable bodies into practically anywhere, which is why they're well known for escaping aquariums. In 2016, an octopus liberated himself from the New Zealand National Aquarium by squeezing through a hole in his enclosure, maneuvering his way through the quiet, moonlit floors, and slid into a narrow pipe leading to the freedom of unrestricted waters. This sort of behavior is extremely in character for these curious, engaging creatures. With the ability to lift four times their body weight, the tanks humans try to keep them in are often no match. Like us, they prefer their freedom. They were around at the same time as the dinosaurs, giving them an abundance of generations to evolve and become the remarkable beings that they are. One feature I find particularly unique about them is the capability of their hundreds of suckers. Each one can be moved independently thanks to a complex bundle of neurons that act as a brain, letting the animal touch, smell, and manipulate objects. Octopuses can open clamshells, maneuver rocks, even dismantle the filtration system of an aquarium tank. In addition to that, octopi have a superpower I know I would love to have. They can regrow their lost limbs. With two-thirds of their neurons located in their limbs, even if they experience a direct blow to the head, they are still alert. That fact makes the dish sanokchi. I might have said that wrong, devastating. Here, an octopus has their head sliced in half, their brain removed, and their body is then served as their legs still desperately try to escape. While octopuses are brilliant and complex creatures, they still fall victim to the brutality of man. Every ocean is home to at least one of 300 species of octopus, and each of these species are impacted by humans in one way or another. The following quote is from an article on how to buy, cook, and eat octopuses. 
Ovulgurus is the most popular eating octopus. 20 to 100,000 metric tons of this octopus is landed yearly. The octopus, though an intelligent animal, easily yields to the octopus pot. Traditionally, these were made out of clay, but now they are made of plastic or PVC. You don't put bait in octopus pots like crab and lobster traps. Instead, you make the octopus feel like it's nesting in a safe octopus home. Baby octopi are often targeted first, and since external fertilization is practiced by octopus, both parents die to produce offspring, they aren't able to receive a warning about humans from their parents. However, it has been shown that the personality traits are passed between parents and child among octopi, so perhaps the threat has been relayed genetically. Sadly, there's nowhere they can go to escape human reach. Overfishing of the seas is having a significant impact on octopi populations. In the 1970s, annual catch hovered at around 99,000 tons per year. In recent years, that number has dropped by almost half to approximately 44,000 tons annually. This number isn't due to a lack of demand, but a significant decrease in the supply available. As a result, several nations have been experimenting with octopus farms. It hasn't been successfully done before due to how difficult it is to confine them, but regardless, they're trying. There are several reasons this is a bad idea, one of them being that they are carnivorous. Thus, their confinement breaches the same problems as farming any other carnivorous fish. Many other animals must be caught, killed, and fed to them over their lifespan before they are then themselves killed. With the global sea life population in a rapid decline, farming carnivorous animals is just plain stupid. Research facilities, such as the one in my birthplace of Kona, Hawaii, are currently working to understand the life cycles of these creatures so that they can be later exploited for aquaculture. Families take their children on a tour of the Konaloa octopus farm, where all of the octopi are imprisoned for the entire duration of their lives so that humans can gain knowledge about how to oppress them further. It literally makes me sick. Simultaneously, in the UK, an amendment of the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill is being processed to include octopus as sentient animals. After diving into 300 scientific studies, experts felt that it was the obvious conclusion that there is strong evidence that they experience a wide breadth of emotions, from happiness, excitement, and pleasure, to fear, pain, and distress. Nowadays, the intelligence of these animals is unquestionable, but that doesn't stop humans from causing them immense harm. To gain to gain a deeper emotional understanding of these animals, watch the award-winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Alligators and Crocodiles Both alligators and crocodiles are members of the taxonomic order of Crocodilia, where the evolutionary paths slightly diverged around 80 million years ago. Alligators are commonly found in freshwater, while crocodiles have the ability to comfortably reside in saltwater habitats. Likely because of this, crocodiles can be found in the Americas, Australia, Asia, and Africa, while alligators are mostly only found in the Americas and in a specific region of China. Alligators found in China are quite small, weighing in at 50 pounds and growing up to be a little under 5 feet in length. In comparison, the American alligator can weigh up to 1,000 pounds and measure in to be 11.2 feet long. Being social creatures, alligators will often gather in groups that humans have coined congregations and lazily soak in the sun together. Similar to most reptiles, alligators are cold-blooded and cannot regulate their temperature internally, so they require external sources of heat and coolness to stay balanced. This is why alligators live in warmer, more tropical climates. Alligator mothers are extremely protective and take care of their young. 
They typically lay 10 to 50 eggs in a nest made of mud, plants, and sticks. She makes sure to keep her eggs covered and at a nice, cozy temperature. The University of Michigan Museum of Zoology actually reports that the temperature of the nest determines the sex of her children. Females are born in cooler nest temperatures, while males are born in hotter conditions. The hatchlings typically stay with their mother for two years before moving on to make their own lives for their fairly long lifespan of 30 to 50 years. A healthy, protected Chinese alligator surpasses the lifespan of the American, living up to 70 years. It's a while. Unfortunately, the Chinese alligator is critically endangered, with an estimated 130 individuals still alive in the wild. Their natural marshy habitats have largely been taken over by rice farms. Thirteen known species of crocodiles exist in the world, ranging from the dwarf crocodile, 13 to 15 pounds, to the saltwater, to the little. Thirteen known species of crocodiles exist in the world, ranging from the dwarf crocodile, 13 to 15 pounds, to the saltwater crocodile, can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. They hunt their prey by crushing them with their powerful jaw and then swallowing them whole. <laughs> to help their bodies digest that enormous quantity of flesh and bone, they swallow small rocks to help grind it up internally. Their incredibly slow metabolism enables them to survive for months at a time without a meal. While their jaw can apply up to 5,000 pounds of pressure per square inch, they have very little strength when it comes to opening their mouths. Some poachers use... They're so loud. Um, someone just drove by really noisily. I don't know if you could hear it, but okay, getting back to it. Um... <sighs> Some poachers use rubber bands to keep them shut. Similar to alligators, crocodiles are cold-blooded and will even hibernate in the colder seasons. They have remarkable hearing and can even hear their young calling to them from inside their egg. That's so cool. They lay around 10 to 60 eggs, and the kiddos stay with them for a shorter time span than those of alligators, about 55 to 110 days. Their average lifespan depends on their species, but ranges anywhere between 30 to 75 years, with the Nile crocodile living up to 100. One amazing feature both crocodiles and alligators share is the ability to sense pressure change in the water because of their integumentary, in, integumentary, integumentary sense organs, which can be seen as little black specks on their head. This allows them to detect potential prey or predators, the latter of which is quite uncommon for these animals. During their reign 100 million years ago in the Mesozoic era, the crocodilia order sat firmly near the top of the food chain. Nowadays, not many animals except for humans can take on these creatures. We have become the biggest threat to reptiles. In 1967, the American alligator was saved from the brink of extinction by being added to the endangered species list and receiving some legal protection from humans. Habitat loss and hunting were, and still are, their primary threats. To quote the Smithsonian Magazine, a range of human-influenced disruptions climate change, endocrine disruption, man-made canals that interrupt water level cycles in wetlands, and freshland marshing flooding with salt water, are pushing crocodiles deeper inland. And as they begin encroaching on people's backyards, parks, and along roadways, they risk encounters with humankind. Humans often act out of fear when they're met with a creature who could most definitely kill them. But lucky for us, the average adult is way too big to be considered viable prey. They swallow their prey whole, remember? So consuming a body nearly the size of them just doesn't make sense. 
Kids and pets are a different story. And the attacks certainly aren't impossible, but generally avoidable if we avoid their territory. The problem, though, is that their territory is expanding as regions that were previously habitable become hostile to them. While they are quite good at adapting to new environments, we aren't as open-minded at the thought of coexisting. For example, alligator attacks per year in Florida are less than 12, but the state receives well over 13,000 alligator complaints a year. When the creatures do attack, they aren't the only ones prosecuted. Those those that hunt down the problem gator often kill many others just in case, which results in the death of five to 7,000 alligators a year at the hand of humans in Florida alone. In addition to murdering them in their homes, humans often farm these creatures for their meat and skin. This business brings in 60 to $70 million in the state of Louisiana. The conditions they're kept in are gross and resemble that of a prison if your death was guaranteed at the end of your sentence. The death given to them is often cruel, with some having their spinal cords severed and others being skinned alive. Regardless of the manner of death, killing someone so you can make a handbag or belt with their skin is sadistic. Sometimes I, like, forget the content I'm reading, and then, like, a sentence like that just kind of jars me. To quote a PETA investigation of the Vietnam crocodile kill floor, workers electroshocked crocodiles then attempted to kill them by cutting into their necks and ramming metal rods down their spines. The animals shake vigorously as this happens. One crocodile leg can be seen raising up even after he was cut open. The workers leave him to bleed out. This killing method has long been shown to be inhumane and experts have found that crocodiles remain conscious for over an hour after their spinal cord has been severed and their blood vessels cut. A reptile expert who watched the footage of the crocodiles being slaughtered said, The neck incisions would have been very painful and inhumane, and there is no probability that these animals died instantly. The items made with their bloodshed are quite expensive. The cheapest are a couple hundred, and the most expensive I saw with a quick Google search was over $22,000. Apparently, some sell for double that. Luckily, many fashion brands are moving away from animal skin, specifically exotic animal skin, but this actually drives the price and rarity of these items even more so. Why are these desired items is beyond my understanding. The wood frog has developed a method of using the glucose found in their blood, concentrated in their vital organs, to resist completely freezing to death. These frogs can live in the Arctic Circle and have been known to survive for weeks with 65% of their body frozen solid, yet their organs are still operating. On the other end of the extreme climate spectrum, the Australian water-holding frog will burrow underground and nest in a cocoon of its own shed skin to wait for rain for up to seven years. So impressive. So impressive. And now for the sad stuff. Worldwide, American bullfrogs are the most common type of frog that is farmed for their their flesh. The leading exports of frogs are China, Taiwan, Ecuador, and Mexico. They're typically farmed in factory-like conditions with little room to move and a filthy living space. Before being harvested, they're starved for 24 hours, and some farms will even put ice into the water so they're unable to move. A common method of killing is by skinning them alive. And cutting off their rear legs and snouts. That's so sad. 
Other times, they're bludgeoned and then decapitated. A study posted in the Journal of Conservation Biology states that an estimated range of 200 million to over a billion frogs are killed in farms or in the wild for humans desiring to eat their flesh. Three quarters of frog leg consumption can be accounted for by the U.S., France, and Belgium. In Florida, there is even a frog leg festival that broke the world record for the most frog legs consumed at a festival. Sometimes, frogs are stuffed onto cargo ships and exported to other nations to be killed. This poses another complex issue. On occasion, a few captives may escape or be intentionally released into the wild. While this is great for that individual, it's not fantastic for the environment that may not be suited to support that species. That frog may also be carrying... This is a long word. I'm going to do my best. Batra chochitrium dendrobitididis BD or amphibian chytrid fungus chytrid fungus they might be carrying that not all amphibians are at risk of falling victim to this fungus but the populations who do have an observed mortality rate of 90% in 2009 a shocking study found that 62% of live American bullfrogs imported into the US carried BD This fungus is one of the primary reasons that over a third of all known frog species are at risk of extinction. Humans are doing a remarkable job of elevating that threat. Turtles. Sea turtles have been around for more than 100 million years and live in nearly every ocean basin. Seven species of sea turtles exist, with six of them being endangered. Sea turtles are migratory, being able to travel more than 1,400 miles and dive impressive depths of 500 feet. Sea turtles are generally solitary animals, only joining with others to mate. Unfortunately, there is one place left in the world where they are farmed for their flesh in shallow concrete tanks, the Cayman Turtle Farm. Ironically, the farm is supposedly engaged in conservation efforts on the island, while simultaneously farming them for their flesh. The farm has a program in which they release some of the turtles into the wild, but after several contagious diseases were documented on the farm, they put the program on hold in 2013. Severe overcrowding, disease, injury, emancipation, and distress behavior, such as cannibalism, have been documented on the farm by a range of NGOs, visitors, and the UK Parliamentary Committee. I want to, like, pause for a second. So, They're generally solitary animals that travel a lot and dive very deep, and they're in small, concrete, shallow pits with a ton of others. Usually, they're alone. They're they're the only one of their species, only sometimes coming together to mate. But now there's maybe a hundred in a tank. Maddening. In one instant, 299 turtles died in one night when a water pipe burst. Regardless, this farm is the biggest tourist attraction on the island, acting as a sort of petting zoo where people can just pick up young turtles from the water for a photo op. People can't seem to wait to get their picture taken with a farm turtle destined to be slaughtered. And I also saw on like a website where someone was documenting their experience at the farm, which was like horrible. Um, They saw people like kids going up and just picking up turtles and just dropping them or chasing the turtles, cornering them and then just lifting them like Okay, this next part is a quote from the National Geographic article, This Turtle Tourist Center Also Raises Endangered Turtles for Meat. Um, and it's like, a, it's, a, it's a long quote. 
In 2015, Amy Souster, a trainer at the Cayman Center, quit after witnessing what she called a heartbreaking situation every day. All you could see was this frothing bed of turtle heads coming up for the surface. Souster, who now runs the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, RSPCA, facility in the UK, tells National Geographic. They were constantly fighting to get to the surface to breathe. All the turtles you could see had injuries and bite marks from the others that were stacked on top of each other. She also says she came in early one morning to find maintenance workers charged with draining and refilling the pools with fresh water each day, sprinkling chlorine powder directly on and around the turtles who weren't removed from the pools during cleaning time. Each time she raised concerns, she said she was ignored. It left me feeling completely helpless and just mortified that this was happening underneath my nose and there was nothing I could do about it. End quote. Aside from being raised or captured for their flesh, the top dangerous posts for sea turtle populations are the fishing industry, like when they get caught in ghost nets, or when they just get caught in the fishing nets, um, and they're often killed as bycatch or thrown back in with injuries. Coastal development, which allows them to not have a safe space to lay their eggs or nest. Plastic and other marine debris, which is often confused as food and then just horrible things to their insides. You've probably seen very popular videos of like the O-rings around a turtle's neck. Global warming does not make the ocean very livable for them. And the turtle shell trade, which is essentially their shells are traded for like jewelry, um, which is interesting. Um, and aside from sea turtles, there is a whole turtle industry Um for raising like farm turtles that are like land but also aquatic turtles but not of the sea um and there's not a lot of information on that like when i looked it up i couldn't find very much um there's a lot of videos of people's like individual turtle farms and like the minecraft turtle farm tutorial came up but there's not a ton of information about this out there which i found interesting um but it's similar to you know other conditions where animals are raised for their flesh it's just it's exploitative um and happening it's very common in the states and like the south so like louisiana georgia um and it's also common in asian countries as well um i was shocked when i was on youtube what you could find like very graphic videos of like turtles being slaughtered so that's out there too um, and this next part that we're going to talk about is actually what got me to start filming this video in the first place, or not filming it, but um, writing the section. Um, and it's because my friend John, who's actually here right now, not like here, but like in the house here, um, he asked me, he was like, well, what about shellfish? And I was like, they're animals, I don't eat them either. Um, but I didn't, I hadn't like actually individually looked into it. And so now I have some information in my brain that I get to share with you guys. Bivalves and gastropods. The term bivalves and gastropods encompass several species of animals, such as clams, scallops, mussels, oysters, snails, and slugs. Um, the gastropods are the snails and slugs, and the bivalves are everything previous. There's a frequent debate held whether these creatures are sentient or able to feel pain. This is the topic we'll be focusing on in this section. While bivalves don't have a brain, they do have a nerve ganglia, which are essentially clusters of nerve cells that create a sort of pre-brain. So the question arises, if they have nerve cells, can they feel pain? Let's first dive into what pain is and why we experience it. The evolutionary function of pain is theorized to be a teaching tool to signal that the being sensing pain should move away or not repeat the action that is causing them harm. 
It's often believed that since bivalves are unable to move on their own, that it's highly unlikely that they would develop the ability to feel pain. This assumption, however, isn't necessarily true. Scallops, fine-shelled clams, and the larvae of several bivalves do swim by essentially flapping their shells. Bivalves can also close their shells to avoid harm. Only a handful of studies exist regarding the question of bivalve sentience and their ability to feel pain. Due to our differences and finite understanding of what it feels like to be anyone other than human, our abilities to determine the experience of another who reacts to stimuli different than us is limited. To quote the paper, no susceptive, beha- no susceptive behavior in physiology of mollusks, animal welfare implications by Robin J. Crook and Edgar T. Walters, quote, because the definition of pain includes a subjective component that may be impossible to gauge in animals quite different from humans, upon arrival, their legs are bound and their throats are slit where they're still conscious. Adult cows used for leather are subject to many of the same horrors of food-producing factory farms. Physical abuse, such as branding, exertion to the point of exhaustion, and deprivation of food and water. The global leather trade is not simply a byproduct of the meat and dairy industries, as some may think. According to a 2009 Greenpeace report, Slaughtering the Amazon, leather constitutes more than a quarter of the value of the Brazilian cattle trade, making it singularly the most valuable part of the cattle industry. As an inedible product, leather is not subject to food safety testing and does not require refrigeration, making it the most profitable part of the cow. The number of cows slaughtered annually to satisfy the demand for leather is predicted to increase from 290 million currently to an estimated 430 million by 2025. That's in a few years. Rather than a harmless byproduct of animal agriculture, leather is a brutal industry all on its own. While global leather production is usually outsourced to India, Bangladesh, or China, cows in the U.S. killed for their skins are traded with similar cruelty. American cows are transported hundreds of miles in extreme cramped cars to leather processing slaughterhouses. Once they reach the processing site, adult cows are typically shot in the head with a bolt gun and hung up by their legs. Their throats are cut and they are skinned. Because many slaughterhouses in the U.S. rapidly process up to 400 animals per hour, Cows are often only partially stunned and therefore skinned alive. The steadily rising global appetite for leather ensures that these torturous practices continue. Um, I've seen video of that, of like a cow, no skin, bulging eyes, overtly still alive. And don't look at leather products the same. Like... It's honestly crazy. It's so dystopian. Like, to just, like, I was at a bonfire last night, and some people with leather shoes, leather gloves, and I was just kind of like, I don't know. It can be hard <laughs> living in this world sometimes, knowing that so much harm is going on, but there's, like, a limited capacity in which we as individuals are able to do something. Um... Yeah, okay. Adult cows are not the only victim of the leather industry. As with industrial food farming, the skins of the youngest and most vulnerable animals yield the highest economic value. Newborn calf skin produces particularly soft, thin leather and is thus marketed as more luxurious than that of older cows. To access cow skin, 
at its absolute youngest, unborn calves are sometimes removed directly from their mother's wombs. Fuck, dude. Like the meat and dairy industries, leather production frequently relies on the systematic abuse of mothers and their babies and the severing of the bonds between them. Imagine being born and then skinned alive. Consumers insatiably desire animal skin products due in part to the belief the belief that leather is a high-end commodity, a perception that is at odds with the reality of its production. While exotic skins such as those from alligators and crocodiles are often marked by luxury brands such as Hermes and Prada, they too are typically mass-produced in extremely dirty factory farms. One Georgia farmer in 2001 had 10,000 alligators living in four buildings, where, according to the Los Angeles Times, hundreds and hundreds of alligators filled every inch of each room. The process of obtaining animal skin is no less barbaric for reptiles than it is for cows. For lizards and snakes, skinning them alive is the preferred method because it's believed to keep the skin supple. Snake and alligator skins might seem luxurious material for boots and bags, yet producing these skins causes unimaginable suffering and routinely occurs at unhygienic factory farms. It is virtually impossible to discern what kind of animal produced the skin from which your leather bag or coach is made. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, via undercover footage that it acquired, revealed that dogs and cats are raised for fur and leather in China. The video footage shows dogs being bludgeoned before having their throats cut and their skin removed, sometimes while still alive and conscious. As of 2014, 100-200 dogs were killed in China per day for leather production. The video confirms that the resulting leather was intended for export to the U.S. market. The Dog and Cat Protection Act of 2000 bans the U.S. import of dog and cat furs and skins, but distinguishing dog and cat leather from that of cow, sheep, and pigs is virtually impossible. The ban is therefore extremely difficult to enforce. A report by the Congressional Research Service shows that in 2014, the U.S. imported 8.5 billion in leather articles from China. The American appetite for leather, unbeknownst to most consumers, directly supports the brutal slaughter of cats and dogs. For animal lovers, or even animal likers, it's time to rethink leather. Leather production is not only cruel to animals, but also harmful to tannery workers. The tanning process, which treats collagen and protein fibers in animal skins to prevent biodegradation, is what gives leather its durability. Tanning leather so that it does not rot is a multi-step process that requires a noxious cocktail of carcinogens, including mineral salts, formaldehyde, coal tar derivatives, and various oils, dyes, and cyanide-based finishes. Studies of leather tannery workers worldwide reveal links between tannery work and multiple cancers, including bladder, pancreatic, skin, and lung cancers. Regular exposure to the commonly used tanning chemical arsenic is particularly associated with lung cancer. Enonyl dye, often used in the tanning process and frequently promoted as a non-toxic chemical, is specifically linked to bladder cancer. In one tannery in Dukta, Bangladesh, employees have been documented loading chemicals such as chromium and sodium formate into drums of animal skin without gloves or other protective equipment. Chromium dust, which is produced when animal skins are buffed, is con is considered hazardous by the Environmental Protection Agency. Inhaled chromium dust severely harms the upper respiratory tract by acting as a lung irritant and carcinogen. 
obstructing airways and increasing risk of lung, nasal, and sinus cancers. Leather manufacturers greatly profit from the tannery process, despite ample proof that tannery work makes employees sick and shortens their lives. Tannery waste runoff causes a serious ecological problem called eutrophication. I could have said that wrong in which plant life begins growing excessively in water systems, resulting in the depletion of the water's oxygen level. Eutrophication not only suffocates animals, but is also the leading cause of hypoxic dead zones. By depriving oxygen to aquatic animals and causing them to die, dead zones cause ripple effects of harm to marine ecosystems. Animal farming itself requires massive quantities of water in vast areas of land and significantly contributes to global deforestation. In the last half century, 70% of the Amazon rainforest has been cleared just for cattle pastures. Industrial animal farming releases dangerous levels of methane and nitrous oxide, both, both potent greenhouse gases. Leather production is thus not only an Leather production is thus not only natural resource intensive, but also extremely harmful to the environment. Leather production poses a triple threat. It inflicts cruelty on animals, harms and kills humans, and destroys vital ecosystems. Leather is not merely a byproduct of animal farming, but rather directly contributes to the profitability of factory farms and slaughterhouses. Wearing leather condones the continued exploitation of the most vulnerable human and non-human animals on the planet. Nothing cool or rugged about that. All right, and that was that. Once again, written by Katie McNally. Um, who's a PhD um, on sentientmedia.org. Felt like that was a pretty comprehensive look at the leather industry. Um, and, you know, that also kind of feeds really well into what we're going to be talking about next week, which is about the impact that the, this farming um, has on humans with the environment and with our health um, and a whole kind of host of other things. So, I'm looking forward to diving into that with you guys next week. Um, it's also actually going to be the last week before um, I'm going on a bit of a road trip, going to a music festival. Um, and so I don't know if I will be posting the following week. I will be at a music festival, so I'm going to just say I won't be, um, truthfully. But I may, um, I may try to interview someone if someone comes up or something. Um, but... Yeah, next week I will be um, talking about the human impact of animal agriculture, uh, then taking a break for one to two weeks because I'm going to be gone for two weeks, um, and then coming back to you guys maybe with an interview or um, I need to I need to look and see what else we're going to be talking about in the book. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope that you take into consideration, you know, what was said. Um, may this spark conversation among, you know, friends, family. Um, if you found this information useful, feel free to share this podcast. If you want to dive deeper into all this, you know, you can consider getting my book. Um, you can message me individually, um, or you can get it online. It's online. If you just look at Plant Peace, Shine, and Holiday, it's available um, on most online bookstores. Um, like Barnes and Nobles. It's also available on Amazon, but Amazon kind of sucks. So follow your heart with that one. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a really beautiful day. Mwah.